This episode is brought to you in part by Thomas Nelson, publisher of The Joy Challenge. Discover the ancient secret to experiencing worry-defeating, circumstance-defying happiness. Written by pastor and best-selling author Randy Frazee and is available everywhere audiobooks are sold. Your eyes on the times, you walk ready to speak up. But with so many problems, you're exhausted trying to keep up. This is the Church Politics Podcast, where you can get political commentary from a biblical worldview. We're not trying to be conservative or progressive. We're trying to be Christian in the public square. And I'm black as heaven. I'm made in God's image. Nobody can change my settings. Amen. Hey man, cut off my knees and put an end to my search. It's easy to sell your soul when you don't know what it's worth. Which you know good, Ann Camp. You're listening to the Ann Campaign's Church Politics Podcast with Justin Gibney, a.k.a. Bishop Cooper's grandson, and the Windy City representative, the baddest brother above the Mason-Dixon line, my play cousin, the right reverend, Christopher Butler. Okay, Christopher Butler is not here, and I got some sad news. Chris has been fired from the Church Politics Podcast. Reason being... He just refused to be the co-host that I wanted him to, him to be. He refused to agree with me on every single issue and pandered to everything I said. And so I just had to let him go. All right. I'm kidding. Chris is still with us. He's just not with us today. All right. He's not he's not getting fired. But I figured I would scare some of y'all just to wake you up before this very important conversation I'm about to have now. So I'm really excited about this conversation. So I'm going to get all the pleasantries out the way so we can get to our special guest, Peter Valk. Really excited about this conversation. It's going to be about LGBTQ matters, and I think you need to hear it. All right. So let me first say I thank everybody who's been supporting the AND campaign. We appreciate you. You know how we feel about you. Do not forget that the theme song for this year for the Church Politics Podcast, but also for our Civic Revival, is Al Green's Everything's Gonna Be All Right. If you have not been bumping that in your car or on the bus in your headphones, you need to go go ahead and put that on several of your playlists. All right. That's the song for this year. All right. I want to give a shout out to all our patrons and supporters for supporting us in what we do and how we do it. If you're watching on YouTube, remember to like and subscribe. Very important. You know how these social media things go. We got to make sure people are liking it so that we can get into more feeds. Y'all, y'all know how the algorithm is. Help a brother out and, and let's make that happen. All right. So, again, this is a very important conversation, a very serious conversation. I'm going to treat it that way. So, as always, grab your Bible, get your mind right, and prepare to think, not like a Republican, not like a Democrat, but to think like a Christian. And I want to start with some scripture. I want to start with Luke 15, verses 1 through 7. All right? And it says, this is the NIV, It says, now the tax collectors and sinners were all gathering around to hear Jesus. But the Pharisees and the teachers of the law muttered, this man welcomes sinners and eats with them. Then Jesus told them this parable. Suppose one of you has a hundred sheep and loses one of them. Doesn't he leave the ninety nine in the open country and go after the lost sheep? Until he finds it. And when he finds it, he joyfully puts it on his shoulders and goes home. Then he calls his friends and neighbors together and says, rejoice with me. 
I have found my lost sheep. I tell you that in the same way, there will be more rejoicing in heaven over one sinner who repents than over 99 righteous persons who do not repent. Remember, at the beginning, he says that the Pharisees said this man welcomes sinners and eats with them. And I say all that to say thank you to my guest for fellowshipping with me, a sinner. And my guest is very special. I think he he's talking about an issue that we all need to address. His name is Peter Valk. Peter is a speaker slash author on vocational singleness and LGBT plus topics, according to a biblical sexual ethic. He's the executive director of Equip, a Christian ministry that trains leaders around LGBT plus topics. He's a co-founder of the Nashville Family of Brothers, an ecumenically Christian modern monastery. He's a teacher, aspiring deacon in the ACNA and a licensed professional counselor. He helps churches love gay people and celibate Christians find family. You can follow him at Peter L. Valk and learn more about him at Peter L. Valk. Dot com And we'll have that in our show notes just so y'all can follow him. Peter, thank you so much for joining me today, man. Yeah, thanks for having me on the podcast. I'm really grateful. Yeah, man. I mean, you've been gracious to me because we were supposed to do this a while ago and I just kept fumbling the ball. But I'm glad that we got here. And it's, it's, it's a topic that I think our audience really needs to hear. And I just want to be very honest with you when it comes to this LGBT plus conversation. I think that the church has failed in so many ways, right? You have one part of the church that was just very, for years, very, very harsh towards this community, rejected them, did not show compassion in the way that we are supposed to. And I think unless we're willing to reckon with that failure and we're willing to enter into this conversation with a broken heart, then we won't get this right. Then you have another part of the church that just said, hey, let's just affirm it, go along with whatever, you know, pop culture kind of puts out there. It's good because we want to be compassionate. We don't want anybody, anybody to feel hurt. And I just feel like we've gotten it wrong. But one thing I also know is that I personally, Justin Gibney, I don't have the answers. Right. So I really do see somebody like you as a resource for me as I try to be faithful while correcting some of the major mistakes that Christians have made in the past. So again, thank you for joining us. And first of all, Peter, just tell us a little bit about yourself, your journey and and what you do. Yeah. So you, yeah, you shared about a couple of the things that I do in my life and my day job and outside of my job. And each of those have to do with sexuality and finding belonging in the body of Christ, all those different kind of works, kingdom works matter to me because I'm a Christian and I'm gay. I experience same-sex attraction, and I'm committed to that historic biblical sexual ethic. Mm-hmm. And and let me just clarify: when I say at least like historic sexual ethic, biblical historical sexual ethic, what do I mean by that? I mean a belief that God's best for every Christian is either what some call vocational singleness, which is the kind of singleness that Jesus talks about in Matthew 19 and Paul talks about in 1 Corinthians 7, which is a lifetime vocation of abstinent singleness for the sake of kingdom work with undivided attention. Or God's best is Christian marriage, which Christians have historically understood to be a lifetime vocation of opposite sex Christian marriage for the purposes of a lot of things, but including an openness to the kingdom work of of raising children together. Mm. 
Yeah, I I grew up in kind of cultural Christianity in rural Northeast Tennessee mm. in the 90s. And by the time that I you know noticed that I experienced same-sex attractions, I had heard a steady diet of pretty kind of homophobic and problematic things in the environment around me, as well as people teaching what the scriptures have to say about God's wisdom for everyone's sexuality, including those who experience same-sex attraction. So I experienced that extreme, maybe, of, 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 a, of a solution or a, or a misshapen understanding of God's love and wisdom for LGBT plus people. Mm-hmm. Fast forward to today, yeah, in many, many churches and many different cultural spaces outside of our churches, I feel this other pressure to abandon God's wisdom in the scriptures and find fullness of life somewhere else. And the challenge for my journey has been, how do I walk a middle way in between those two? How do I hold tightly to God's wisdom in the scriptures? And how do I, if there's going to be enduring, persisting brokenness in my life, how do I submit that to the Lord and steward that in ways that brings glory to to God and, and brings goodness to my life? And in many ways that inspires and, 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 and is the foundation of a lot of the work that I do. And who would you say so were some of your influencers as you tried to f- figure this out? Who, who kind of helped you along the way think through it? For a lot of people, maybe in, in my generation, plus or minus a couple of years, there was actually kind of a gap in terms of help to make sense of this. Because mm. just as I was coming of age and getting to the end of my teens and early 20s was when the kind of Exodus International Pray the Gay Away movement was imploding. Mm. Yeah, yeah. And yeah. so all of the maybe wisdom and mentorship that a person might have found from that space was gone. But something new to replace that had not yet been built yet. Mm. And so a big part of my story, actually, in high school and in college was grasping in the dark to find someone who could help me make sense of this part of my story, hoping that my parents or a pastor or a campus minister would know more about this stuff than I had discovered through my own personal experience Mm. and, and could help me figure out what does it look like to submit my broken sexuality to Jesus and steward it in a way that brings glory to God and goodness mm. to my life. And I think the, the biggest challenge was there, there was no one. Like <laughs> the biggest resource I had was I, yeah, I went to Vanderbilt University and I was in a Christian fraternity. And at one point kind of, I felt compelled to share my testimony at our, one of our fraternity meetings. And I can, ended up connecting after that with a number of other guys who had a similar story and convictions and had never shared with anyone else. Wow. And they were really the help, the people who helped me make sense of this part of my story were just other people who were just as lost as me, but at least we had the same problem, the same challenge. And, and we could try to, to figure out, to pray and discern together what God's wisdom was for us. Thankfully, that's not true today. You know, thankfully, there are ministries like Equip that I help lead and other ministries that are equipping pastors and parents to mm. disciple Christians who experience same-sex attraction and gender incongruence. But yeah, those resources didn't exist you know, a decade ago, 20 years ago. Wow. So to help me understand, help our audience understand, let's dig into a little bit what it means to be same-sex attracted, celibate, and how that ties into your definition of vocational singleness. Like, let's dig into what that means for somebody coming from your perspective. One morning during puberty, when most of my guy friends woke up and suddenly started seeing girls their age in a different way, started being drawn to them physically, uh, wanting to connect with them romantically. Well, that morning I woke up and instead felt the same thing for other guys. And I didn't have anything 
to do with bringing that about, uh, nor did my parents. But I also don't think it was God's intention. Like I think experiencing same-sex attraction and being tempted to lust after other men, I think it's a brokenness. I think it's a, a product of the fall. And I think none of us are how God intended us to be. I think all of us are wounded by this broken world we're born into, including our sexualities. You know, all of our sexualities are broken. Um, but but for whatever reason, the particular way that the brokenness of the world impacted me was that I developed these same-sex attractions. Um, but also to be clear, uh, you know, merely experiencing same-sex attraction isn't a sin. Like right. it, it isn't a sin to be tempted by something. We commit sin when we say yes to a sure. temptation in thought, word, or deed. Mm-hmm. So, and yeah, and then despite the fact that I tried for like a decade to eliminate my same-sex attractions, that just doesn't seem to be the way things work either. You know, I mean, certainly God has the power to do whatever he wants. Okay. But scientific research shows that 96% of people who try to change their same sex attractions experience no change in their attractions. But those efforts do lead to like a, a doubling of the risk of suicide. So, so, so eliminating same sex attractions and developing robust general opposite sex attractions where they previously were not, that kind of happens at the level of a miracle. Yeah. Maybe. So certainly we can pray for miracles and, and God does miracles, but the story of kind of the thorn in Paul's flesh, I think to me seems to instruct us that maybe we shouldn't wait around for a miracle, you know, yeah. but instead ask God, you know, Hey God, if this brokenness continues, how do you want me to steward this for your glory and for my good? Mm-hmm. And for me, part of, my answer to that question has been to commit to celibacy, you know? And, and these days, a lot of people have a lot of different definitions of celibacy. Like I think I recently read about a celebrity who said she was going celibate for a season, which for her meant no romantic relationships, physical only, one night stands and focusing on herself. So the world tends uh, to destroy definitions, right? Yes. So mm-hmm. maybe to clarify what I mean when I say celibacy, you know, historically Christians have understood celibacy to be a, a permanent giving up of romance, dating, marriage, sex, or biological children to instead use one's availability in celibacy to serve the poor and the needy in our city with all of our attention and focus and energies. So, so, so being same-sex attracted and celibate for me isn't too different than my exclusively opposite sex attracted friends who are yeah. committed to celibacy. That's right. Yeah. I, I'm resisting temptations to a different, to different people than, than they are, but we're both refraining from romance or dating or sex gotcha. and, rem- and resisting temptations to lust after. Anyone. Let me ask you this. Cause you brought it up and it's, it's such an important issue. A lot of people who I know, and I think they're doing this out of the goodness of their, or feel like they're doing this out of the goodness of their heart started being affirming of the LGBTQ lifestyle based on the idea that if you don't affirm people who are same sex attracted, they'll commit suicide. Like that's been a very strong narrative. And I think a lot of people have said, wow, I certainly don't want that to happen. So it'd be better if I just affirm. So what do you, what do you say to people who, who kind of, who say that, but also why does affirmation not equal love? I think some of the challenge here is there's actually more than just two perspectives, theological perspectives 
on like what God's love and wisdom is for LGBT plus people. Mm -hmm. And so one perspective, you know, maybe as a gay affirming perspective, if you want to use that or a progressive sexual ethic or pro gay marriage theology. But then the other two options, I think we need to distinguish between kind of a pray the gay away ex-gay theology versus a compassionate historic sexual ethic. And so if we, if we tease out those three, there absolutely is research that demonstrates that pray the gay away theology, that ex-gay theology leads to an increased risk of suicide and loss of faith in the lives of LGBT plus people who try to walk that path. That is absolutely true. You know, I'd also say that anecdotally, I have a lot of friends who are gay and Christian and adopt a, a pro-gay marriage theology. And five or 10 years down the road, very few of them call themselves Christians anymore. So there's a way, and that's a much more delicate, complicated conversation, but, but it seems like gay affirming or a pro-gay marriage theology leads to loss of faith in the lives of the gay Christians that adopt it. Okay? Mm-hmm. So it seems to me that like both extremes lead to loss of faith. The ex-gay theology on one extreme also leads to loss of life. But in the middle, way between these two extremes, this, there's a compassionate, historic, biblical sexual ethic. And there's not a ton of research about that path, that pathway, and what kind of spiritual health and mental health it leads to. But at least the preliminary research that's been done by Mark Yarhouse uh, and others demonstrates that actually gay Christians who try to walk that middle way of holding on to biblical wisdom, but recognizing that pray the gay way is not the solution, experience equivalent mental health outcomes to the average American. So they're healthy compared to the Mm. average American. And they actually experience greater life satisfaction than the average American. So I think I would just push back on the idea that like God's wisdom embodied in the way that Jesus would really want us to embody it for LGBT plus people. It doesn't lead to suicide or loss of faith. And it doesn't require us to throw away the wisdom in the scriptures. The, the, the statistics show that the pathway that leads to most spiritual and mental health is following God's wisdom and embodying it in a gracious, compassionate, loving way. Right. So it sounds like maybe the issue isn't that some people aren't being affirmed in maybe their lifestyle or, or they're accepting of, of, you know, a behavior that accepts kind of the LGBT lifestyle, but it's that they weren't being shown compassion. So yeah. if you say, no, I don't necessarily affirm you, and then you show, you revile that person and you reject them, then yeah, you're pushing them into, into a space where they don't feel any belonging. But if you say, I can't affirm you because of what the Bible says, but I love you, and I'm just as broken as you are, and I want to walk with you, that may be the cure instead of just saying, I have to affirm you. It's either, it's either hate or affirm. And that's a false dichotomy that we see a lot in our society. And I think that we need to break. And that, that I think it kind of can dismantle that narrative that it's either suicide or complete affirmation. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. All right, man. That, that is our first segment. We will be right back with Peter Valk on the Church Politics Podcast. Are you too progressive for conservatives and too conservative for progressives? 
As a Christian, do you find yourself feeling politically homeless? If so, then you're not alone. Listen, this is Justin Gibney, president of the AND campaign. And if you're a Christian who doesn't know a whole lot about politics or someone who knows a good deal about politics but wants to be more faithful in the public square, then you have to read the AND campaign's book, Compassion and Conviction. The AND Campaign's Guide to Faithful Civic Engagement that we published with InterVarsity Press. Whether you just want to understand the relationship between church and state, why Christians should engage politics at all, how Christians should engage partisanship, politics and race, advocacy and protest, or even civility, this is the book for you. It's very much Bible-centered. It's Bible study and small group friendly. There are questions and exercises after every chapter that give you a framework for engaging politics in a biblical way. So if you want to do it in a better way, get our book, Compassion and Conviction, The End Campaign's Guide to Faithful Civic Engagement. And we are back on the Church Politics Podcast. This is your host, Justin Gibney. Chris is not with us today, but he will be back. I was just joking about firing him, all right? But we are here with Peter Valk, who's been a friend of the AND campaign. He's in Nashville and has really helped me personally think through the LGBT plus conversation. Now, while I, I, you know, we have talked, I definitely appreciate you. You continue to help me through this and to relate to people that I'm around. One thing that we probably still disagree on is same-sex attracted Christians calling themselves gay. From my perspective, and I know there was a controversy with Tim Keller on this and all that, but from my perspective, I, I'm not. I kind of think, well, do we want to identify with something that you said is brokenness? And what is the result of kind of identifying with brokenness? What, what's your response to that perspective? So I t- I totally appreciate the concern and. I mean, the words we use matter as believers. The words we use matter. And I've written kind of a a, a comprehensive kind of essay about why I use the word gay for evangelistic purposes. So maybe we can add that to the the show notes. But briefly, what I'll say is when I say the word gay, some people and maybe some people of some older generations or maybe a certain kind of cultural Christianity context – they assume that gay means pursuing same-sex romantic relationships, that gay means a certain opinion about biblical wisdom or about God altogether. I can think about even more maybe problematic stereotypes that I grew up with around what the word gay meant. And so for those people, the word gay comes with all this extra baggage, all this assumptions about what it means. And so they would prefer for people to just use the phrase same-sex attraction because that's You know, in in their minds, oh, the word same-sex attraction, the phrase same-sex attraction is self-evident. It doesn't have extra baggage and it's clear. Why don't we just use that? Okay. Whereas there's some other people who, when I use the phrase same-sex attraction, they strongly associate that phrase with the Pray the Gay Way movement. And it actually has a lot of baggage, particularly for kind of older maybe generations of LGBT plus people, but even younger generations. I mean, if you get on LGBT plus TikTok, queer TikTok, gay TikTok today, there are videos that are teaching the the younger generation of LGBT plus people that if you hear a a Christian in particular use the phrase same-sex attraction, that's a red flag that they're going to send you to pray the gay away camp. Run away from them. Mm, So there's an educating of the next generation of LGBT plus people who will never directly experience 
the ex-gay stuff in the same ways that it existed in the 80s and 90s and early 2000s, but they're being taught stay away from Christians who use the phrase same-sex attraction. Whereas for them, you know, if I go to a lot of, talk to a lot of middle schoolers today, for example, and I ask them, what does the word gay mean? They would say, oh, a boy who likes boys or a girl who likes girls. Nothing more. No assumptions about their theology or philosophy or whether they're pursuing relationships or in a relationship or anything. So I think the, the, the challenge, just the challenge with this conversation is that both the word gay and the phrase same-sex attraction are unclear and carry baggage. Like there is no word or term I could use with every audience that is free of baggage and cl communicates clearly. There's no perfect term to minister to LGBT plus non-Christians and gay teens in your church and straight culture warriors in your church. There's no perfect term. And so I choose to use the word that's most effective with gay teens. And then I choose to make clear what I mean with the people in the audience who might be put off by that. And, and why is that? Well, I mean, we know that gay teens are five times more likely to attempt suicide than their peers. We know that LGBT plus youth who are religious are 40% more likely to attempt suicide than non-religious LGBT plus peers. We know that gay teens from highly rejecting families are like eight times more likely to attempt suicide than their LGBT plus peers. And we know that like 54% of LGBT plus people who grew up in the church have left the church. And so for those reasons, I, I really want to use whatever language, terminology, verbology is most effective with teens, with young adults, with the next generation. And then ask those who might find the word gay to be difficult for them, ask them to give me some grace and give me a chance to clarify with them what I mean when they use that, when I use that word. Gotcha. I, I think it's also important to distinguish between using the word gay phenomenologically versus ontologically. Mm. And by that, I mean, like, when we define something phenomenologically, we're naming something based on one's experience or what it appears to be. We're describing it from the outside. In contrast, when we ask who a person is ontologically, we're asking who they are innately, like by design. So I, I just want to clarify that when I use the word gay, I'm not saying that I or someone else is ontologically gay. I'm not saying that I am fundamentally a different person or that God designed me to be gay. I'm merely noticing that I'm attracted to other okay. people of the same sex and using, in my opinion, kind of the best word to describe that experience. So yeah, ultimately for me, using the word gay in the context that I do my work, which is often trying to convince teens and young adults not to give up on God's wisdom for all of our sexualities. Mm -hmm. I think part of using that word is a part of the way that I share the gospel. You okay. Know, I, I say, I'm a Christian and I'm gay. Yep. And I'm convinced that God calls all Christians to vocational singleness or Christian marriage. I'm, I'm first a child of God, foremost. Jesus and Jesus alone sits on the throne of my life. And I experienced same-sex attraction. Yeah. And that has significantly impacted my journey and how I see the world. And it's connected me with others who have similar experiences. And I feel connected with people in the past who have had similar experiences. Gotcha. And I think I have something to offer the church, particularly because of those experiences. So, yeah, I, I use the word gay to identify with people of similar experiences okay. as me. I don't use the word gay to identify with same-sex attractions or with sin. But, yeah, it's complicated. It's complicated. No, that, that was actually a very hopeful explanation, probably the best explanation I've heard of that. And so I, I appreciate it, Peter. One of yeah. the things that gets me about this controversy, and, and I think Christians really need to focus in on, is 
how it's framed as them versus us. Right. So for a lot of Christians who are caught up in the culture war, it's our families are this are that versus those LGBT plus people over there. When it seems to me the truth of the matter, if we're going to be honest, it's us. It's all us. Right. There's no Mm -hmm. us versus them. People with, you know, that are in the LGBT plus community are in our homes, are our family members are. I mean, no, no family is completely separated. No church is completely separated from that. And so one thing that I want to help the church do is get rid of the them versus like this is an us problem and we all need to address it. And I think in a recent controversy, this kind of reared its ugly head again. So Pastor Alistair Begg is a very well-known, I believe, reformed evangelical Christian. A lot of, you know, reform bros and all that. Like he's one of those guys that your most conservative Christian would go to and say, hey, this guy's theology is is great. Right. Uh, A star in those circles. And I'll be honest with you. Mm -hmm. I'm not one of those people that says I can't listen to somebody who's white evangelical and reform. I listen to Alistair Begg preach all the time because he can preach. And I think he does. I think he does an excellent job most of the time. He recently was asked a question, I think, by like a grandmother or something who had a transgender grand son or daughter, I can't remember which one it was, and who was getting married. And she asked him, should she go to the ceremony? And Alistair Begg said, you know, for one, he kind of set up the context to say, make sure that he knows how you feel about this, right? Like, be very clear on where you stand when it comes to the gospel and when it comes to doctrine on this not being right, or as you put it, this not being God's best for us. But then he said, once that is very clear, then I think you should go and maybe even bring them a gift because it would be the compassionate thing to do. And it's probably not what your grandson or daughter would expect you to do. That blew, I mean, the last week or so of uh, social media in those kind of reform spaces, wherever has been pretty crazy. I mean, this is the last guy I would have thought would get canceled by, you know, the conservative, you know, very conservative evangelical but they were quick to, to almost cancel him. And I think what they missed, I want to hear what you think about this, but I think what they missed, even if you don't agree with them, this whole thing is set up like, oh, if you do that, you're giving the other side an inch and they're going to take a mile. It's not the other side. Everything's not about the other side. Like this being set up as a culture war battle is really hurtful. Now, I understand why some people would say, no, you're just going to push people into affirmation. You got to be very clear when you do something like that. I get why people are weary of it, but I also think you guys are making this as them versus us and it has to be different. What's your thoughts on that controversy? Yeah. I mean, I I think we need to treat sacred what God treats sacred. And I think it's really important for Christians to be consistent. And I think we should maintain relationship where we can, but doing all three of those can be, can be tricky. I mean, okay. So God seems to have defined pretty narrowly what Christian marriage is like what the kind of marriage that God joins and sustains in a unique way. God has defined that narrowly. And, and yeah, I believe there's no context for same sex sexual or romantic activity in the scriptures that God blesses. Like I'm convinced that same sex sexual and romantic activities are sins in any context. So God, God would never bless a gay marriage. So if I believe that God is not joining a couple in Christian marriage, then I can't testify otherwise, right? I, mm-hmm. I can't lie. So if two self-professed Christians are getting married in a church and using Christian marriage vows, and they're asking me to officiate, 
or they're asking me to play some significant role in the ceremony that unavoidably communicates that I communicate something that I know to be false, then I can't do that. Mm -hmm. You know, but I think there's a big difference between two non-Christians of the same sex getting married in a field without invoking God versus two Christians of the same sex quoting scripture and using a Christian marriage liturgy in a church. Mm -hmm. And I mean, historically, like Christian, when we've attended Christian marriages, when Christians have attended Christian marriages, we've participated in the ceremony liturgy. You know, we, we testify that God is indeed joining the couple in Christian marriage and we're committing to helping that marriage thrive. And so if our participation, even attendance, it, it, it says something, it, it matters, you know? So at least in practice for me, what this means is that like, I feel comfortable attending some non-Christian same-sex weddings on that one extreme in the field without naming God, you know, that I described. Whereas it's a lot harder when I'm invited to the weddings of like two Christians of the same sex. Because mm-hmm. to me, it's a fundamentally different question of what I'm testifying to. And, and if I decide I can't attend, I do try to explain my decision in a way that honors and cares for people. And I go to great lengths to reassure the couple of my love for them, that I'm not judging them, that I, that I just need to respect my own convictions. But, but here's, the, here's what I really want to say. Here's the challenge. Most weddings aren't cleanly at one of these extremes. Like most gay weddings are somewhere along a spectrum between those two hypothetical right. weddings. So, you know, each time we get invited to a wedding that falls short of God's highest standards, I think we've got to humbly weigh how our presence might be misinterpreted versus how our absence might affect mm-hmm. our relationship with the betrothed and our potential to have a gospel impact on their future. Yeah. But even more important than that, I think we've got to be consistent. Like, regardless of what you're personally comfortable with along that spectrum, there are a lot of opposite sex weddings that fall just as short of God's vision for Christian marriage. Yeah. You know, if you're invited to a wedding of two non-Christians of the opposite sex, you're invited to the wedding of a Christian and a non-Christian of the opposite sex. You're invited to the wedding of two opposite sex Christians who don't take seriously the biblical purposes of Christian marriage or don't take seriously what the Bible has to say about divorce and remarriage. Like if the opposite sex union you're invited to celebrate falls short of God's design for Christian marriage in their own way, I challenge you to respond the same ways that you would to a same-sex couple whose union falls short of God's design for Christian marriage. That's heavy. And I'd hesitate to attend those weddings too. So I think consistency is key. Consistency is key. That's heavy. I mean, that's that's really good because I would say I'm probably guilty of not applying that in the same way now that I, now that I think about it. And my thing was, I think there were decent arguments on both sides. I heard Alistair Begg's heart and what he was trying to accomplish and for him to get canceled, you know, for folks to try to cancel him because he was trying to figure it out. I was like, the problem is you guys aren't trying to figure it out. So what I hear from you is you might disagree with what he said, but for the people that aren't even, that are trying to make it so simple. And if you step over that line, this one line, there's no nuance, there's no nothing. You step over this one line, you're not one of us anymore. You've, you've, you've mm-hmm. given the battle, you know, you've surrendered to the other side. I think it was such a short-sighted interpretation of what he was trying to do at that time. Yeah. Yeah. If some people, if some people are more sensitive to erring on the side of preserving relationship, Mm -hmm. but then they should err on the side of preserving relationship in every instance. Some people are going to err on the side of, I want to make sure my presence is not misinterpreted 
right? Sure. But then you've got to apply that in every circumstance. And I think my hunch is most of the people who are canceling Alistair, if we actually looked at what at some of the opposite sex weddings that they've attended over the last decade, they've attended plenty that they would recognize fall short of God's wisdom. And so it doesn't seem like their standard was really about a, a care for right. a sacredness for Christian marriage and God's wisdom in scripture. It seems like there's something else motivating their response. And that I would, I would encourage them to bring that before Jesus. Yeah, And wouldn't it be better to start a conversation with somebody who is otherwise shown that he's committed to scripture than to go on social media and try to and try to cancel him or put up videos where you're not really representing exactly what he was saying. Even, even if you disagreed with them, we're, st- we're all making those mistakes as we struggle through something that historically the church has gotten wrong. Yeah. Let's have the conversation. I, I guess that's just where I'm coming from. Now, <laughs> one thing that I say to people who because there are a lot of critics, especially on the on the right and left of, of what you're trying to do from the people on the right. Again, I think it's the same thing as, as we see with this, the controversy we just spoke about. Some people aren't struggling at all to understand. Now, we know the, the burden is light when it comes to the gospel, but it's still something that's not necessarily easy for you to do when it comes to your sexuality. And you have people who have never made a commitment like that or, or fought through anything like that, making this too simple. And I always point to even if, you know, even me, if me and Peter or some of the other folks that have a similar perspective, if you disagree on the semantics of it, you got to have an appreciation for the commitment to faithfulness and a sacrifice that a lot of people aren't asked to make. And many of your critics aren't asked to make. And so that's my pushback to people on the right. Tell us a little bit more about the pushback you get from people on the left and how you deal with that. Yeah, sometimes, well, actually often, I think those who have a more progressive perspective on some of these questions, it's often motivated because they've got LGBT plus loved ones who they couldn't tell you the exact details and and plot out the, the cause and effect. All they know is they've got LGBT plus friends who wanted to follow Jesus and all of Jesus's wisdom. And in their efforts to do so, they got burnt out. And they got hurt and they experienced deep shame and it just didn't work for them. And they're like, that that certainly can't be God's solution. God's solution has got to be something different here. Let's try this other explanation. And in some ways, I really admire their motivations ultimately is is that they actually care for LGBT plus people. Mm -hmm. And they're saying, if something is true, it ought to be good and beautiful. And I'm not seeing the good and beautiful. So we got to change something. Mm -hmm. I think that's the right motivations. I think they just, it's the wrong solution. The problem isn't God's wisdom. The problem is the way we're, we're embodying it. But I think in that is maybe some of my pushback to those who hold a more progressive sexual ethic is, yeah, let's, let's look at the, the results, you know, the proofs in the pudding, a a progressive sexual ethic doesn't seem to be working out well for a lot of LGBT plus Christians long-term either. And I think actually this middle way of like holding on to biblical truth but but also recognizing that pray the gay away is not the solution is actually in some ways the hardest path. It, it's the path that calls all of us in the church to the most work, mm. the most work to be done. It's not the shortcut solution. It's the real big, rich, robust, but hard to build solution. Right. right. And one thing, for example, and this connects to what you said previously about the, the burden that some people are called to. In a lot of our churches, a lot of parents, they hope that their kids get married. 
for a lot of reasons. One of them is that most of us grew up in churches where we never saw anyone walking out lifetime singleness and thriving in it. Mm. Right? Parents are like, regardless of what's in the scriptures, I want my kid to be happy. I think my kid will be miserable if they're single. Mm-hmm. Okay, well, if if you recognize the statistics that pray the gay away doesn't work for gay people, but you believe that God's wisdom says that gay marriage isn't good for gay people, then the only option left for a lot of gay people is to walk out celibacy. Yet you wouldn't you wouldn't put that on your own kids. So what are we doing to make our churches places where someone could walk out lifetime singleness and thrive in it, regardless of sexual orientation, gay or straight? I don't, I don't care who you're attracted to. Very few of our churches are places where anyone could walk out lifetime singleness and find the kind of family in the body of Christ mm. that they need. So our church needs to get busy doing that, teaching what the scriptures actually have to say about Jesus singleness and becoming places where people could actually live Jesus singleness for a lifetime and find belonging and fullness of life in that. Peter, let me hold you right there because you have a lot to yeah. say there and I want you to be able to say yeah. it all. Let's go to this break and we'll come back and, and ask the question, what should the church do to make people in your situation feel that sense of belonging and give them what they need to walk that out. We will be right back on the church politics podcast. And we are back on the church politics podcast. It's Justin Gibney. I'm here with Peter Volk and we are talking about being Christian and being in the LGBT plus community. Now, Peter, you're very passionate about this. I I appreciate that, man. And that's why we have you on. I want to ask a very practical question, and you were getting to it right before the break. If I'm the leader of a church or part of church leadership, what can I do practically to make people like yourself feel comfortable and be able to walk out this vocational singleness in a way that's, you know, Flourishing. Yeah. So the maybe the five suggestions, but I only only talk about three of them because two of them are probably obvious to the average pastor or Christian leader. You need to teach teach about God's love and wisdom for LGBT plus people in ways that are careful and in ways that are true. And some churches are trying to step into that. So yes, do more of that. And you've got to be able to offer good one on one pastoral pastoral care to any people who experience same sex attraction or gender incongruence in your community. Keep doing that. I think those two things are probably pretty obvious to a Christian leader. Three other things, maybe blind spots, but that are the big areas of growth. One of the biggest barriers to long-term thriving for LGBT plus Christians is that most of people spend five or 10 years in the closet making sense of their sexuality alone Mm. with the lies of the enemy and the lies of culture. Mm, and wow. accruing these wounds, anxiety and depression and suicidality and unhealthy coping mechanisms, accruing all these wounds of the closet. And then by the time they finally share with a parent or pastor, even if they decide to keep on following God's wisdom, they are being they are being weighed down by these wounds of the closet. And as a therapist who cares for that population, I would say many of them are will spend decades trying to undo those wounds of the closet. And so a big thing a lot of our churches could do is to prevent those wounds of the closet is to make sure that every kid before puberty knows about God's love and wisdom for LGBT plus people in age appropriate ways. So that as soon as any kid notices that this might be a part of their story, they share with a parent or pastor and they make sense of this with the love and wisdom of Jesus embodied Mm. in their parent or pastor. So that's one big step. 
We got to equip parents to have age appropriate conversation with their kids before puberty about this stuff. Second thing is that I think a big barrier is kind of there's a, there's a double standard around kind of sexual stewardship and accountability in our churches. We've already talked about it a little bit today, but there's there's some ways that we maybe we hold straight Christians to seemingly a higher standard of sexual stewardship than gay Christians. And I think we need to level that playing field because because when it's when it's unequal, it can easily lead to kind of a victim mentality in the in the eyes and the hearts of LGBT plus people that make it easier for them to throw away God's wisdom. But I don't think the solution is to lower everyone's standard of sexual stewardship. I think the solution actually is to raise the standard for everyone's sexual stewardship. Let's really teach what the scriptures have to say about vocational singleness and about unbiblical divorce and remarriage. And uh, and let's have real conversations about how wise casual romance and dating outside of marriage is and all these kinds of things. Like, Mm. let's take what the scriptures have to say about everyone's sexuality seriously. I think that'll change things. I think that'll lead to more thriving in the lives of straight Christians if we actually teach the scriptures and help them live it out. And I think if we eliminate that double standard, it'll make it easier for for LGBT plus Christians to follow God's wisdom. And and last but not least, if we're going to invite some gay people and some straight people in our churches to walk out lifetime singleness for the sake of the kingdom, we've got to be places where those people can find some kind of human family in the body of Christ some kind of lived-in, lifelong family. Maybe that's encouraging people to to stay connected and and living with or living closely to biological family. Maybe that's living next door or moving in with kind of an unrelated family at your church. Maybe that's building some kind of intentional Christian community. I'm a part of kind of a a modern monastery of sorts. But, But whatever that looks like, what we see in the early church in Acts 6 is the church accepts the responsibility to provide a home and a family for widows. What if the church today accepted the responsibility to foster and cultivate places where single people could find a family and find a home? I think that would change things in a big way, not only for LGBT plus Christians who are trying to follow God's wisdom, but but our churches are full of single young adult women who feel lonely. It's full of widows and divorcees who feel lonely. And if we can offer all of those different people thicker family in the body of Christ, one, they'll find belonging, they'll find love, they'll find human family. But two, people who right now maybe feel dragged down and feel like their kingdom or capacity is running low, all of a sudden will have so much more to offer the church and offer their community because they're filled wow. with the love of Jesus that's through great. their church. Now, that's um, so great. I think it's, it's a win, win, win all the way. No, that's way. great, man. Well, I like how you talked about raising the standard to a true biblical standard rather than lowering it. Because so much of this conversation comes down to someone can't have a fulfilled life without sleeping with who they want to sleep with. And if we take that to its logical conclusion, that's a terrible statement. And it's just not true. Like, it's, it's not at all true. I mean, what do you say to people who've never even had a chance to have those in- interactions? Their life is certainly can flourish and be worth living. And so people really don't think that out. Oh, you're denying somebody to sleep with who they want to sleep with. And therefore, life is not worth living. Christians, I mean, Christians have to think through that a little better. So thank you for that. I, th- I, th- I thought that you make some great points and very practical for our listeners who are really looking to do better and need some advice there. Last question, though, and I've even experienced this in my personal life, and I just want to get your 
view of it. Kids. And you just talked to talk about age appropriate. My, my one of my sons was as a, at a school where I think they were showing LGBTQ plus things to the kids that were not age appropriate and that were better left to parents. And it became such a pattern that we had to remove them from the school. We also hear about books in libraries not being age appropriate. You have all kind of sex acts in the books. And what do you make of that? Do you see in pop culture an undue influence to to push some kids towards one way or another, just towards confusion, right? How do you how do you deal with that? Because I don't want to be I don't want to be the culture warrior on it and and see things where they aren't. But I also have my own experience where I've actually seen it and I know that it's real too. So go ahead. Yeah, I mean it, it's real. And I think in some ways also there it's it's not anything new. Like there have always been deliberate effort by humans to to impact the next generation based on what they think would be best for the next generation. Sexual and gender identity just happen to be at the forefront of that today, mm-hmm. you know? And yeah, we could spend a lot of time and energy debating where that is and is not happening and what efforts are more egregious than others and maybe fantasize about a world where we removed all of those influences from media and schools and libraries and parks. But, but what I hear from parents that they care most about is how to best care for their kids. That's what I'm hearing from you. Mm-hmm. And, and so I think it's best to focus on the real challenge. Like unless a parent moves their family out into the middle of nowhere and homeschools their kids and doesn't let them get on the internet until they're 18, there is no way to really keep your kids from being exposed to some of these things. Sure. And then biology, like nature is, is working against parents. Like studies are showing that on average, teens are going through puberty years earlier than a century ago, yet they are developing their mental and emotional capacities to make sense of life later than they did centuries ago. Like they're going the opposite directions, right? So it's like, it seems unavoidable that your kids are going to be confronted by broken sexuality in our world in one way or another earlier than you wish they would be and earlier than they have the capacity to make sense of on their own. So you've got two options. Parents can can wish we lived in a world where they didn't have to talk to their kids about these things until later in life and let the enemy and culture and TikTok get to their kids earlier and shape how their kids think about the world in all kinds of ways, including sexuality and gender. And then you can try to have conversations with them years later and try to play catch up with your kids and try to undo what's already been set in. Or parents can seek out the equipping they need to proactively disciple their kids around sexuality and gender mm-hmm. and, and, and initiate recurring age-appropriate conversations with kids from an early age about God's love and wisdom for everyone's sexuality and gender. No, that's good. You can get to your kids before the enemy or culture or TikTok does and, and teach them how to understand the world through the eyes of Jesus. Yeah, and, and I think there's a value in kind of doing both to reasonably limit exposure. I mean, I'm not going to sit there, oh, it's out there, so let me watch this pornographic movie with my kids because one day they're going to see it anyway, right? Sure. But there's a, a limiting of the exposure in a, in a reasonable way but at the same time, walking them through and having those conversations. So to me, it's not one or the other, but there's no way in the world. I mean, if they turn on the television and watch a commercial, they're going to see something. But at the same time, I may want to limit that while letting them know, like, no, we love everybody. And regardless of who you are and how you feel, God loves you. Yeah. I think a lot of parents are trying to walk through in that way. Yeah. Yeah, for sure. For sure. And, and I can imagine a lot of parents when they hear that and they hear about this responsibility to like, prepare their kids for all of this, they're freaked out. 
I don't know about mm -hmm. you. You know, I mean, you're a smart guy. You've done a lot of studying. You may feel like you have what you need to like initiate these conversations with your kids. But most of the parents I'm connected to, they feel very unprepared. And so mm -hmm. last thing I'll just say is there's a lot of good resources out there to equip parents around these conversations. But I would personally recommend you check out Equip's parent course. That's the, the ministry that I help run. And you can check that out at equipyourcommunity.org forward slash parent course. My coworker, Amber Carroll, she's a, a former public school English teacher and a parent of two kids. And from her experience in the classroom and as a mom, she's developed kind of a, a comprehensive resource to upskill parents around this stuff, to, to initiate these conversations with their kids about sexual stewardship for all people, but also about LGBT plus topics. And, and she's even written like 50 different conversation scripts chunks for different ages for mm, how wow. to have these conversations with your kids, how to initiate conversations, how to respond to tricky questions that come up. So yeah, check that out, do your homework and disciple your kids around sexuality and gender before somebody else does. Peter Valk, thank you. Thank you. Thank you for this conversation. Do not let any of these folks deter you from what you're doing, discourage you from what you're doing. The and campaign is behind you. We appreciate what you are doing and it is certainly God's work. And what I want to tell the people listening today is you guys know that the AND campaign is all about compassion and conviction. And in no other area is that more important than what we're talking about today. For Christians who come from a more conservative point of view, we have to reckon with the failures of the church on this issue. And we have to start having these conversations and engaging with a broken heart. Because if we can't do that, then we're not going to understand what's necessary to move forward in a healthy way. And for those, and I know there's a lot of pastors in Atlanta and everywhere else with big names that are moving towards affirming. For those who are getting closer to affirming or are affirming, I would say to you, you need to have some moral imagination and conviction. Because sometimes you have to follow God even when you can't see why that's the right thing to do. Sometimes your scope is limited and you just can't see why that makes sense. But if you really believe in the word, you need to stand on those convictions and understand that God's compassion is greater than your compassion. His understanding of love is greater than yours. And sometimes we do things that seem right to us, but are actually destroying us or destroying those around us. So compassion and conviction always. Thank you again for joining us. Y'all know what it is, Ann Camp. There's a cross that neither political conservatism nor progressivism is fit to bear. There's a civic hearing and neither faithful witnesses who love social justice and won't surrender the truth to be loved by the world. Politic with the boldness and compassion of Jesus Christ. Until next time, Ann Camp. Well, I'll let you. This episode was brought to you in part by The Compelled Podcast, which uses gripping, immersive storytelling to bring Christian testimonies to life. Listen to missionaries, addicts, martyrs, and more who have seen Jesus at work in unbelievable ways. Listen on your podcast app or compelledpodcast.com.